The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. Tenakoto, to those of you who are fanulas of the granular synthesis syllabus. Hari mai, to the Paradise Delay podcast, an exploration of electronic music and mental health. Join us for the midweek breakdown on Fresh FM. So, we've got another podcast coming at you from the back of a Toyota Estima. Great car, gets a lot of mileage, cannot recommend more. This week we've been parked up in a campground on the east coast in a place called Tolaga Bay. Man, seriously, what a beautiful place. The light out here is just different, shines different. When the sun's going down in the afternoon, the whole place just comes alive with this orange glow. It's beautiful, and I haven't experienced many places like that. And I heard my first cicada this week, so you know summer's on its way. It's a nice sound, the old cicada. It's, it was only one cicada, so it sounded a little bit lonely. Usually it's a chorus of cicadas, it sounds like Something that's been detuned and then probably added a lot of delay and a bit of chorus to it and you get that real full cicada sound. And there's nothing that reminds me of summer more and it's on its way. So here we go. So I've been picking blueberries this week. It's been a nice job. Get to eat a few blueberries. Try not to eat too many, but you know, they're pretty tasty. And yeah, I was listening to a podcast, as you do when you're picking blueberries, and it kind of blew my mind. Was it, they were talking about a theory, and talking about stars in our galaxy. The interesting thing is, there's smaller stars in our sun and the galaxy, and we can measure their movements and how fast they're going and these little stars for some reason seem to be traveling faster than would be expected and we can kind of expect a speed from them due to how much weight how much mass is in the galaxy and because of that depending how far out they are from the center of the galaxy we should be able to predict how fast they would be moving and these speedy little stars are faster than we would predict using science scientific stuff scientific methods and they were talking about one theory to explain this was something called dark matter dark matter theory and dark matter is 
a substance. Uh, it's we don't know if it's real or not, but it's believed that this substance does not reflect or emit light, and so it can be really difficult to detect. The theory suggests that in order to explain the little stars speeding along, dark matter would have to make up 85% of the weight of the mass of the universe. No, the galaxy, not the universe. And yeah, it's interesting that our theory is that we believe there's something that can't be detected out there to explain these speedy little stars. And I went down the rabbit hole a little bit. You know how you do. I was, okay, dark matter, that sounds interesting. I might go check something else out. And I came across some bizarre theories that I think are so interesting. This theory is pretty bizarre. It's pretty out there, but I mean, it's like science fiction. It's it's plausible. It's not saying it is the correct answer to why these speedy little stars are speeding across the galaxy. It's still interesting to examine these, I think. The theory puts forward that it's plausible that these little stars could be conscious, which blew my mind, that these stars are some kind of coordinated cosmic dance. And the interesting thing about it is these little stars tend to form in clusters. And I was thinking, you know, it's kind of nice if these stars are conscious. They're looking for friends. They're looking for small stars like themselves to hang out with. Because it must be quite lonely speeding through the galaxy by yourself. The theory, the theory goes way deeper. Uh, it gets pretty complex. There's a whole lot of stuff about quantum physics that I probably won't go into. Mostly because I don't entirely understand it myself. Quantum physics. Whoa. It's crazy. So, our sun and stars like our sun combine hydrogen atoms, which are in their core, and this produces a buttload of electricity, which gets released as heat and light. And the difference about these smaller stars speedy smaller stars is that they're smaller and so they have a cooler outer layer than a star like our sun does which means it is plausible that the outer layer of these small stars have other molecules than hydrogen and helium and it's also plausible that these molecules in the outer layer could make up complex ecosystems and it gets complicated from here but these molecules could make up a complex system of electromagnetic forces kind of like the brain and could perhaps hold some form of consciousness now of course this consciousness would be completely different to what us humans believed to be consciousness. It could be entirely out of our understanding. I, I don't think we'd be able to talk to a star. And the thing is, 
this theory is plausible, but we can't examine a star with enough detail to detect that it might be conscious. The thoughts that they have would be unrecognisable to us, and the life experiences between us and these stars would contain almost no common ground for there to be a meaningful dialogue. I guess we're going to be like a bacteria climbing onto a human and trying to communicate with us. Maybe something so far out of their line in sight that they just don't even know it exists. Also, the, the timelines that stars exist on are so much longer than what we as humans experience. Stars live for billions of years. If we're lucky as a human, we might get to 100 years. And this scale of time, just modern human, all of modern human history, 10 to 20,000 years, is just going to appear like a millisecond in the lifetime of a sun. And yeah, I like to think that Maybe each time a solar flare happens, maybe that's like a neuron firing in our brain. It happens far less often, and our brain's neurons fire in milliseconds. But maybe the consciousness that makes up a star could fire with each burst of a solar flare, or something like that. Who knows? I can't help but thinking... If there's scientists out there that have a theory that a star could be conscious, I wonder if it would be possible that a planet could have some form of consciousness within its vast ecosystem itself. Maybe like some form of group mind that exists between all living organisms on the planet? I don't know. But if this is the case, I mean, again, the Earth is on a completely different time scale to us. Whereas bacteria might live for a couple of hours, humans live for a hundred years, and the earth has been around for billions of years. And I mean, if the earth does hold some kind of consciousness, the last hundred years or so for it must feel like it's getting a cold or a flu or something. What I mean by that is, in the past 100 years or so, since the industrial age, our humans' impact has not been the best, to be honest, not so great. Uh, there's been a lot of greenhouse gases which have entered the Earth's atmosphere, uh, as well as uh, pollutants and not-so-great things. And it means the Earth's temperature has increased by a couple of degrees. And I mean this doesn't sound like too much, like a couple degrees it doesn't sound that catastrophic and but I mean if you if you look at us humans, if we if our temperature goes up a couple of degrees, we have a fever, you know, we have a temperature and it throws our whole ecosystem out of balance. And that's what I find kind of scary about the Earth at the moment. It's heating up, it's only a couple of degrees, but 
Like that's a temperature. And Earth needs to go, I don't know, take some antibiotics or something. <laughs> yeah, and now I've heard skeptics say, or like people who don't think that climate change is real or they think it's not made by humans, it's not anthropogenic, that it happens in Earth's natural cycle. Um, and it's true, like the Earth does go through cycles every 10,000 years of heating up and cooling down, having an ice age, woolly mammoths everywhere. But it, it, the concerning thing is it's a speed of what it's heating up. Uh, what you'll see is the global average temperature increasing like crazy over the past hundred years. And we know a bit about the climate of other times and there's just nothing really been on par with this, which you could call natural human processes. Yeah, it's scary. Um, yeah, it should be a trigger warning out here for you. Those of you with climate anxiety, I've had it, still have it to some degree. I apologize for bringing it up, but it should be talked about, right? So, the skeptics, I mean, they find it hard to believe, and it's almost more convenient not to believe in it, I think. They, I mean, 99% of scientists believe that humans are causing climate change. And if you ever tried to get 100 people to agree on something... It's legitimately impossible. I'd say 99 is pretty, pretty up there. I mean, only 9 out of 10 dentists can agree on which toothpaste to use. And that's far less complicated. So, I have a weird take. I have an interesting theory myself. Uh, it's opinion, but I find it interesting and hopefully it sparks some kind of debate. That's the purpose of it. I'm not trying to tell you that something's true. I'm just found an interesting connection this past week. And it's about climate change and how it could be fixed with something that at this point in time is known to be pretty detrimental to the environment. Now this theory involves Bitcoin. AAA, which is known to use more energy in the country of Sweden to secure its network which is not great not a good thing considering a lot of that energy is produced using things that produce greenhouse gases so at this point in time it is directly contributing towards climate change but I have an interesting take about how Bitcoin might be the answer to climate change and how this might come about so get ready to get orange peeled. But before I get into it, uh, I've got a nice song for you. Something to sink your teeth into. Get those incisors tearing up something. This is an artist called Kelly Lee Owens. And her work exists in a subaqueous space with layered sound waves that seem to reverberate through liquid. The tracks physically immersive production samples both the sounds of a mounting glacier and people skating on ice. And it completes the submersion with a synth melody that trickles from the top of your head to the tips of your toes. 
Kelly Lee Owens says she wanted to use organic samples to create something that sounded hard, a climate crisis anthem for the club. The pounding four on the floor rhythm section on this song makes for both a club banger and a political comment, a dazzling dance macabre for impending environmental collapse. Hari mai, 
back to the Paradise Delay podcast. You're here with Ben on Fresh FM. Have you got a voice? Have you got something to say? Whether it's talking about your cats or baseball bats, give them a call, flick Fresh FM an email. They'd be happy to help you out, get a podcast live on the air, and yeah, you can share your voice with the world. They're very nice people. Definitely hit them up. So. A while ago. In some tribes in Western Africa. They used to use glass beads as a form of currency. Now these beads were called agri beads. And they would use these beads, the agris, to trade uh, like money they would trade it for things they wanted and they would wear these glass beads around their necks or their wrists and in these tribes in western Africa these beads were rare enough that they carried a high value to these African tribes and it worked for a long time they would trade beads for what they wanted but You know how all things happen. When settlers, Europeans arrived, they quickly noticed that the glass beads were being used as currency. And they saw an opportunity. They sent news of the agri-beads back to Europe, where glass was cheap to make and could easily be brought over there for cheap. And then shipped them to Africa. And once the Europeans had these glass beads shipped to Africa, they were used to purchase African goods and favors. And the effects of this, pretty much, it just added a whole supply of these beads over time to the African tribes. Which meant that the beads became less and less rare, more and more common. And as they became more common, the value of the beads eroded away, and the wealth of the tribes eroded away too, and was soon transferred to the hands of the Europeans. And unfortunately, this is a tragic case that has repeated itself through history, whether with shells, salt, or even large stones. When a country's currency was easily reproducible, it was taken advantage of. And therefore, you know, it's, it's important for a country to have a currency that's difficult to reproduce. Like, look at our money and all the safety measures it has. You can't exactly photocopy uh, the Queen's face on the $20 note. Is that going to change? Are the $20 notes going to have the King on them now? Prince Charles, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, so it's important for a country to have a currency that's difficult to reproduce and so its supply cannot be flooded by someone just printing money or bringing beads to the country. And this is why for so long in human history gold has been used as currency. Now, gold is a real metal rare metal that does not corrode and it's pretty difficult to find. I've done some gold panning before, 
It's quite fun finding little specks in rivers. Um, yeah, it's good fun. Recommend. So, gold is difficult to mine because it's difficult to find. And because of this, gold has a relatively stable price over time. And going back in history, Julius Caesar was one of the first to introduce gold as a currency. It was called the Aureus, and it contained 8 grams of gold in every coin. And it worked really well. The Aureus was widely accepted across Europe and the Mediterranean, which helped Rome spread its wings. It spread through the Middle East, through Europe, all over the place. And the coin, because of gold and its steady price, had a steady value. That pretty much meant as long as Rome could conquer new lands with significant wealth, its soldiers, emperors, and people, citizens, could enjoy spending their earnings. Under these circumstances, Rome continued to expand its influence and trade with different countries using the Aureus. And yeah, it was a prosperous time. Um, the people of Rome lived a life of relative luxury, which was rarely seen in those times. I mean, it didn't work out for Julius Caesar in the end, obviously. He got stabbed by... I can't remember who the guy was. My history's terrible. But yeah, 75 years after Julius Caesar introduced the Aureus, Rome was really struggling to pay its costs. It had kind of spread all over the show and was not really conquering as much as it was before. And Nero, who was an interesting character... He was an emperor at the time. He decided that he needed money from somewhere. He wanted to continue his frivolous spending as emperor, but just the money wasn't coming in. So he had the genius idea to melt down all of the Aureuses, the gold coins, and create a new coin with a smaller proportion of gold in it. I think he took it down to like 7.2 or something grams. Bitcoin. And what this meant for him is he effectively made all these new coins that he could spend. And that he could use to pay uh, for Rome's costs. But again, like in the Western African tribes, it was effectively flooding the Roman market with glass beads. The value of the coins that the emperors, the governors, and the people of Rome held, effectively dropped overnight. The money that they had worked hard for didn't have the same value anymore. And this is something that repeated itself after Nero. Rome continued this pattern of having coins, remounting coins with less gold in them, resulting in economic crises because people couldn't pay for goods anymore, their money was becoming less and less valuable, it was being eroded away their purchasing power. And some believe that this eventually led to the fall in Rome, because nobody could trust in their money, they didn't have sound money anymore, traders didn't trust them, and yeah, it's interesting, I mean it gets a whole 
a lot more complicated if you look into the economics. But this is a podcast, you're chill, you don't want to hear about too much economics, I'm sure. Now, this principle of having a gold-backed currency wasn't something that just happened a long time ago in Rome. By the 19th century, most of the modern world used the same monetary standard to back the currency gold. And this led to a global wealth accumulation and trade that had never been seen before. Gold allowed people to rely on their savings, and this allowed for people to accumulate large amounts of money. And they would use this money to finance industrialization, urbanization, and technical improvements, a lot of of which have shaped our modern life. And this era was known as the Belle Epoque, meaning the beautiful time in French. And what's interesting about this time, because I always thought now was probably the most innovative time in history, but there's actually a measure of innovation called the Innovation Index. And what it does is it pinpoints life-changing, pivotal innovations that were invented over time and analyzes when most of them occurred. And this index shows that this time was actually the most innovative time in human history. There was the most innovative inventions invented in this time that have improved the human life for everyone. I hope that makes sense. And yeah, some of the most important technological, medical, economic and artistic achievements were invented during the era of the Bell Epoch, where they used money that was backed by gold, which was stable in price. Unfortunately, this all came to a halt with the beginning of the First World War in 1914. Then most countries decoupled their currency from gold and began printing money to fund the war efforts. And it is very similar to what Nero did in the Roman times, but also what the European settlers did, the colonialists with the Western African tribes and the agribeds. It led to an influx of funds in the short term, but also it devalued the country in a huge way, which created inflation where inflation is the devalue of money over time. If you look, for example, uh, inflation's almost at 8% this year in New Zealand, and across the world, inflation's quite high because governments are printing money to respond to the COVID crisis, and what we're seeing is our money being worth less. Our money's worth 8% less than it was at the start of last year, which is... I don't know, it's interesting. So, all the countries started printing money to fund for the First World War, and the war ended, but most of the countries kept their money decoupled from gold. And it is believed in 1928, when the Great Depression happened, that this was 
something that occurred because they had decoupled their money from gold, allowing them to print as much money as they wanted, and basically creating this huge demand for the stock market that was a huge bubble. It's a bit more complicated than that, but I hope you get the point that if it was backed by gold, uh, you can't really print any more money, and so your money is pretty stable over time if you want to invest in the stock market, but if your money is rising 8% every year, you want to put your money in something that's earning money, like the stock market. And you get these bubbles where everyone goes into something and then it crashes out and a lot of people lose their money. Which is not very nice, to be honest. And yeah, uh, I mean you could liken the stock market crash to the fall of Rome and devaluing your currency. But America was one of the ones that still had their money tied to gold after the First World War. And... What happened in 1971 is my man Richard Nixon, who's not my favourite man, uh, he's yeah, not the greatest, regardless, he went on to decouple America's money from gold. And it's quite interesting, because you can look at 1971 and look at wage growth before and after that point, and what you will see is that real wage growth, uh, what you get for working, it's pretty much stagnated from 1971, which means our wages haven't kept up with inflation. And, yeah, a lot of people ask, what happened in 1971? He decoupled America's money from gold, allowing him to print as much money as he wanted. And governments, not that I'm anti-governmental, but, yeah, it's just sad seeing wages stagnate and inequality grow from government spending, where governments have been able to print money when they felt like they needed to. And unfortunately, this printing of money, which causes inflation, tends to hit the lowest class the hardest. Uh, they have the most to lose as their wages stay low, and they don't have the expendable income to invest in the stock market, or in a home, or in things that are going to appreciate in value. And yeah, it's kind of sad, um, especially with inflation in New Zealand, we can see that the savings and equity of New Zealanders would have had to increase by 7% to a let alone break even this year. And what it also means is that saving money in your bank account is not worthwhile as it loses its value over the year by sitting around. And this has an impact on citizens and what they do with their money. Uh, if your money, if you're not really motivated to spend your money, you might invest it. But also, what you're going to do is you're going to spend the money now and consume, because you know this money will not be worth as much in the future. And... Yeah, this is kind of my hot take. I mean, like, government's printing money pretty much means there's no worthwhile uh, means to save money. And so you're likely either going to invest it or you're going to spend and consume. And the thing about consuming, and I do it a lot, to be honest, I just bought some new stereo headphones. They're nice. 
And we all know that a large percentage of greenhouse gases arise from shipping goods and transporting them across the place. So by buying things we don't really need, we're making climate change a lot worse. And this is kind of, I guess, by governments printing money, it almost helps people, motivates people to spend it and spend it quickly. And the interesting thing is, when we had our money tied to the price of gold, we could have faith in our money that $100 I earned this year could be saved and be, be worth close to $100 20 years in the future, enabling us to save or invest that money knowing that it would not be eroded by inflation and not drop down to $50. But having your money tied to gold, which keeps its value over time, it gives people almost like a bigger incentive to think about their future and not short term. Yeah, instead of thinking short term, we can cast our eyes to the future knowing that our savings will be safe. And it almost like provides us a security that allows us to think ahead. And I learned about this crazy experiment, right? Where children were placed in a room with a marshmallow on a plate. And they were told that if they didn't eat the marshmallow, that they would bring back a second after 15 minutes. Now, of course, kids being kids, some of the kids ate the first marshmallow and were happy with that. And some of them waited the 15 minutes and got their two marshmallows. And the most interesting thing about this study is that it went on for years. And they followed up on the children in their future. And what they found was that the children that didn't eat their marshmallows and waited the 15 minutes for the second marshmallow were more successful later in life in terms of academic achievement, health, and also drug addiction. These people had, I guess, they knew about delayed gratification. They could think for the future and realize that by not taking immediate gratification, they would be better off in the future. And I think we can almost compare this experiment to how the current money system works. And it's interesting because I've only just learned about this. So I had no idea that the current money system could possibly work in a different way. And you have to look back in history and see how it did work before. And unfortunately, in 1971 and after the First World War, when countries decoupled their currency from the gold standard they almost we it convinces you to eat the first marshmallow because in this example after 15 minutes the marshmallow might have split in half and half's gone so it motivates us to consume now rather than wait and have half our marshmallow missing. Whereas if we look at a money that's tied to gold, that's tied to a steady value where governments aren't allowed to print money and devalue the currency, 
we can, we, it's like in the experiment, we can save the marshmallow now, knowing that in 15 minutes, you might have one marshmallow and maybe a cookie. You never know. And yeah, with gold back money, you could really set your eyes to the future, knowing how your hard-earned money would keep its value, and you could save money uh, for the future, and know that it wasn't going to be eroded by government spending. And what I think about this? Well, I think having gold-backed currency possibly could have given us a stability, this is opinion, to tackle things like climate change that are long-term things, that aren't short-term, where we delay our gratification for now in order to have a better future. I hope that wasn't enough too much for you. Uh, it's quite complicated, but we'll break it up here. This is a song called Orca's Reprise by renowned house, house artist Jada G. She's actually a marine biologist and she's an am amazing musician. And what she did here is she layered the speech of Orca Wales into this lush, gorgeous arrangement. As violins raise in the background, bright keys dance along, and the orcas swim along in a synthesizer which creates an oceanic space. This is Orcas Reprise by Jade RG.
Orca's Reprise by J.R.G., a marine biologist and house music maker. How cool. It's nice to hear those sounds. I wonder if Orcas can talk. It'd be kind of interesting to go and try and uh, study the language of Orcas, you know, see if you can communicate with them. It's the best I can do. That means... This is a Paradise to Lay podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. So, we've been talking about money and gold back money. And I hear you asking me, is it possible to go back and start using gold, money that is linked to gold, the gold standard, uh, like we used to in the time? And it's difficult. Uh, how the current system is set up. Each country has a currency that has a value, and when you trade those currencies, it's possible to make money off it, depending on if a currency is going up and one's going down. You can buy or you can sell. And it's a crazy market. There's trillions of dollars made on that market every year. And... With that, there's also a motivation to keep it at the status quo, to keep government money that's not backed by gold circulating. And not only that, governments want to be able to print money. They want to be able to control. I'm not anti-governmental, by the way, but when you place the value of money in the hands of a government, it's a lot of power to give the government. The government decides what to spend the money on. And whether it's labor in uh, power or it's national in power, you're going to have people spending money on self-interest and kind of helping their friends out, you know. And it's at the detriment of the average New Zealander because they see their money devalued over time. And so governments don't really want it, and banks certainly don't want it. I may not be anti-governmental, but I don't like banks. So, it's difficult to go back to gold, and the thing is, banks have huge stockpiles of gold, so that when the price of gold does start going up, uh, they're able to just release their gold onto the market, adding to supply and driving the price back down. And so they can kind of control the price of gold by that. And it makes it difficult to go back to the gold standard once you've lost it. And this is when Bitcoin comes in. Bitcoin. uh, Because it's something that runs by itself and it's non-political and it's not controlled by any one purpose. It's kind of like a virus, you know. It's dictated by electricity prices and people's demand for it. And I believe Bitcoin could be the next digital gold, and with that it can bring back some kind of stability to the value of money over time. And so... There are 21 million Bitcoin, right? There's there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. And this is similar to gold, just 
there's only a limited amount of gold in the earth. So Bitcoin is rare. There's only a certain amount of them. And what makes Bitcoin similar to gold as well is that Bitcoin cannot be forged or, you know, it can't be like the agri-beds. They can't just make some more and then add to the supply as Bitcoin has blockchain security, which means that each Bitcoin is unique and cannot be replicated like the glass beads in Western Africa. Just like gold, Bitcoin can be divided into smaller units. There's something called the Satoshi, which is named after Bitcoin's an anonymous founder. And this is 100 millionth of a Bitcoin, so that's one Satoshi. So it can be broken down to smaller units, which is useful as a currency. And just like gold, Bitcoin cannot be mined for free. It's difficult to get Bitcoin. And just like mining gold, mining Bitcoin to secure it costs a lot of electricity. Neither gold nor Bitcoin can be mined for free. And this gives Bitcoin value. It gives it scarcity. It's difficult to get, uh, which adds to its value, similarly to gold. Just like gold, Bitcoin is durable. Uh, it's secured on nodes all across the world and it will last as long as all the computer systems last. If one node still works, Bitcoin's still around. And, I mean, Bitcoin does have an advantage over gold in that it's easily transferable. You can transfer Bitcoin across the world in a matter of minutes. Well, gold is very heavy and moving. Large quantities cost a lot of money in a long time. And the thing is, I hear you saying, like, you want your money to be secured over time. How are you going to do that with Bitcoin? It's so volatile. The price can be up 30% in a day, and then it can also drop 30% in a day. Uh, but that's just, there's a limited amount of people using Bitcoin at the moment. Compared to other currencies, Bitcoin is still relatively unadopted. And... It has been shown that as Bitcoin grows in the number of users, it is becoming less and less volatile as it is adopted. And if this current trend progresses, then it shows that the future price of Bitcoin will be more and more steady. So Bitcoin's pretty young. It's like a little baby. It'll get there. The thing about Bitcoin, and I've talked about this in a previous podcast, is that it shows a steady pattern every four years where the mining reward that you get halves. And when this happens, there's usually a large spike in the price of Bitcoin, followed by a big dip. But at the end of it, the price stabilizes a lot higher than it was before. And this happens because of what's called a halving. And it is when, after four years or amount of Bitcoin are mined, the amount of electricity it takes to mine a Bitcoin doubles, making it twice as difficult to mine a Bitcoin. This would be comparable to halving the amount of gold in the earth every four years. That's what's similar about it, and if that would happen, it would make gold a lot more difficult to come about 
making it more rare, making it more scarce. And usually when that happens, when something's more rare, it's the opposite of the agri beads, people are willing to pay more for it. And in this case, if this happened, the price of gold would increase. And it's the same for Bitcoin. And the thing is with Bitcoin, since 2008, over 19 million of the available 21 million Bitcoin have been mined. And this is a large proportion that have already been released out of all the Bitcoin that will ever be released. The thing is, because of the halving, mining halving and the reward halves every four years or so, it is estimated that it will take into 2140 for all of Bitcoin to be mined. And it's, yeah, it's like Bitcoin's inflationary policy is hard-coded into its design. It's not political. Nobody gets to de decide. It's all there, and it has been from the start. It is a predetermined, very low inflation rate that keeps getting lower for the next 120 years until it reaches zero. And it just seems like the new digital gold, you know, and I'm excited about it, and as it's more adopted people will just have a better store of value for their money, giving them the opportunity to look towards the future, where in the past, in the year 2000, $100 worth of cash would be worth about $130 today. Whereas, if you put $100 into Bitcoin five years ago, it'd be worth $700 now. And, of course, the price has been volatile and all the all over the show since then, but it's it's got a low inflationary po um, policy, and the more it gets adopted, the more the price is likely to go up. And I mean, it looks like a pretty nice marshmallow, right? Um, it just seems like a good investment, and it's a new technology that kind of offers the benefits of gold-backed money, but is not controlled by any one person. It's not influenced by banks, does not need to be converted to another currency, it can be used across borders with anyone who has access to the internet. And I believe it's security for the future, a thing we haven't had in society since 1971. And I'm excited, I mean as time goes on and Bitcoin is adopted more and more, we could enter an age of prosperity and innovation across the world that we haven't seen since the Belle Epoque, the beautiful era in the 19th and 20th century. And I hope, like, I hope it's an age where humanity has the security to look to the future and envisage a better life and work on fixing the problems instead of looking short-term and for short-term profits. A future, I hope, where we aren't worried about short-term thinking. Instead, we're thinking about future generations. We can think of the extra marshmallow at the end we might get if we delay our gratification for the present. And I guess people might not buy that new pink toaster, knowing that their 20-year-old toaster works fine, and that by saving the money, it will be more value in the future. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, it's my hot take about how Bitcoin could actually help solve climate change in the future by giving people a secure future.
and an ability to save money for the future and gain capital and through that invest in innovative products and not just the stocks that are doing well in the stock market. And yeah, I hope that will happen. But yeah, I should probably sign out. It's the Paradise Delay podcast on Fresh FM. You've been here with Ben. It's been a pleasure. Be kind to yourself and be considerate to others. Go hug a dog, go pet a cat, give it a little scratch behind the ears. I think they like that. Have a nice night slash day. Peace. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details.